0: Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 26th of January. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about why Sweden's NATO application looks dead in the water for the foreseeable future. The outlook for Swedish homeowners and tenants as interest rates and rents keep rising. Layoffs at Spotify and what to do if you lose your job in Sweden. We'll listen to a conversation I had with New Zealand's ambassador to Sweden. And finally, we'll discuss why Sweden has become a paradise for billionaires and what it means for the future of the economy. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and with me today are Emma Lovgren in Simrishamn, And in Malmö, we have Richard Orange, Becky Waterton, and today's guest, Andreas Servenka, the award-winning author of Jirig Sveria, or Greedy Sweden, a book that examines how Sweden has become a playground for the super rich. How is everybody?
1: Cold. I don't know if they've turned down my heating in our housing association earlier, but
2: it's absolutely freezing here.
0: Yeah, you need to jump around a little bit. Maybe not during the podcast, <laughs> but after that, jump around.
2: It's okay here. I think because we have three people in a podcast studio, I think it's probably going to get quite warm. <laughs> so you should come here next time, Emma, and then uh, then you won't be complaining about the heat.
0: Oh, we've got tons to get through today. So just say welcome to the podcast, Andreas, and we're going to come back to you quite a bit throughout the episode. But can I just start by asking you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Yes, so I'm currently economics commentator for Aftonbladet, the leading Scandinavian daily, and I've been around uh, f- quite a few outlets over the years. I was at Svenska Dagbladet for 10 years, I've been at Dagens Industry and some other uh, other newspapers, and I've been, you know, a journalist for 25 years actually now.
0: Excellent. Thanks for that. And yeah, you've got the book that we'll talk about more later. I just read it recently and it's a it's a super read. I know Richard read it as well, so we're going to have tons of questions for you about it. We're going to start with NATO. We talked about Sweden's stalled NATO application last week and how the hanging of an effigy of Turkish President Erdogan had put a spanner in the works and things have just continued to go downhill since then. Turkey has now postponed accession talks after the right-wing extremist Rasmus Paladin burned a copy of the Koran outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. And it emerged during the week in a report by the newspaper Sura that the idea to burn the Koran outside the Turkish embassy didn't actually come from Paladin. And Paladin himself confirmed or claimed that the, in Sweden, well-known provocateur Chang Frick, who, among other things, is a presenter for the Sweden Democrats' YouTube channel, Riks, had suggested the idea and covered some of the costs. Can you tell us more about this, Emma? What do we know about the motives for orchestrating this demonstration and who it served to benefit?
1: Well, I mean, as far as Paludan goes, who knows what his motives actually are? This is kind of what he does. He's a far-right activist whose thing is that he goes to places to burn the ground. If you look at the story in a kind of broader context, however, it's pretty clear that ruining Sweden's NATO application benefits the main country that desperately does not want Sweden and Finland to join NATO and also has a bit of a history of exploiting far-right movements to, to meddle in other countries' affairs. And that's that's Russia.
0: OK, so what do we know about that? Do we know if there are any links between Russia and Paladin's Koran burning?
1: Well... Yes and no. So Paladin himself, as as you mentioned, he, he says that the idea to do this at the Turkish Embassy, it it came from one of two people who contacted him to ask him to come to Sweden. A reporter at um, the far-right site Exact 24 which is a site that's run by a former Sweden Democrat member of parliament with a pretty dubious track record of praising Russian democracy, and um, and also Shang Frick, who you mentioned. Uh, so, mm. Frick, he's a guy who runs a right-wing popular site called Nyheter He's also, as you said, a presenter on the Sweden Democrats' YouTube channel, Relix, which, by the way, publishes a lot more extreme right content than the party does in other channels. And um, he's also, among other things, previously produced freelance material for the Russian propaganda site, Russia Today. And (laughs) while I'm mentioning all of those sites, I should probably also say that he last year also appeared on a game show made by Sweden's public broadcaster SVT. So he has this kind of weird role where he's partly seen as a bit of an awkward French figure, but is also kind of a household name.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's actually a show that we talked about on the podcast before in Vandere for for Svenskar, which was pretty funny, or Immigrants for Swedes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Frick himself, he's said that he did pay for Paladin's demonstration permit, well, he said that he wanted a right-wing voice in the NATO protest because so far mm. it's mainly been left-wingers who have been the most vocal about opposing NATO membership for Sweden. But he's also said that he has no interest himself in stopping the NATO application and that he had actually tried to dissuade paladin from burning the Quran, and he had instead suggested burning the Turkish flag, which from the perspective of offending Turkish leadership or not is perhaps a bit potato-potato, but... But there you go. <laughs>
2: um,
1: so there are these kind of sort of links between Russia and crown burning, But there's no sort of firm evidence of any kind that it was orchestrated by Russia.
0: Yeah, interesting. And is anyone
1: else mentioning Russia in this context? Uh, yeah, lots of people. I mean, you've got Mika Altola, who's the head of the Finnish Institute of Foreign Affairs. And he told Bladet, which is a newspaper in Finland, about this latest incident that that Russia really likes using extremists for their influence operations and that Mm. they love how easy it is to just stir things up and cause confusion. You've also got uh, Tony Ingeson, an intelligence analyst at Lund University, who said that although there's not concrete evidence here, That's also kind of the point, that that process should not be transparent or even visible. And there's plenty of reason to be suspicious when these incidents so clearly benefit Russia.
0: And what about the fact that there are links between some of the people involved and the Sweden Democrats? Um, We're seeing a lot of people starting to say that it's time for the government to start answering questions about how it views the potential security risks of collaborating so closely with uh, a far-right party.
1: Yeah, the Sweden Democrats were asked, actually, about pollutants' Quran burning at a press conference this week. They were actually asked, like, straight out, are you behind this? And they said they weren't involved at all, as I'm sure the Russian leadership would say if you asked them. (laughs) But, I mean, it's clear that they, too, benefit when far-right extremists provoke Muslims.
0: I should say that um, Swedish police had given permission for Paladin to stage his demonstration much as they did during the summer when the Danish-Swedish leader of the Kush or hardline party, continued his Quran-burning tour of Sweden which we've discussed previously and we'll link to an earlier episode where we discussed why he's allowed to hold these demonstrations despite how offensive they're considered by many Muslims and indeed just a lot of people in general. And so much has happened this week that we could easily spend this whole episode talking about NATO but we've got tons of articles on the site about recent developments and we'll post some key links in the show notes. And obviously, this is a very serious story, but there have also been some good examples of Swedish humour in the middle of it all, not least after protesters in Istanbul set fire to a Swedish flag. This met with no official reaction from Sweden and really very little outrage anywhere, which prompted a lively discussion on social media about what you actually need to do if you want to offend a Swede. And a lot of the answers came from Swedes. And Becky, you've been keeping a close eye on the responses. What are some of the best ones?
2: I think the thing I found the most interesting is that you can kind of split them up into different categories that each say a bit about Swedish culture. So like... Swedes value fairness really highly, doing things in the right way. Don't jump in front of them in a queue, you know, let people get off the bus before you get on the bus. Don't split a restaurant bill 50-50. You each pay exactly for what you you bought. Like, why does the Swish app have a calculator if not to specifically figure out exactly how many kroner you owe someone after eating lunch with them?
0: Yeah, I I think we've got two two Swedes in the podcast today, but I have a feeling they're going to be way too polite to to interject.
3: (laughs) Unfortunately, I would say that's quite true yeah
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then also like swedes get annoyed or offended if your life if your actions make life difficult for other people like you take someone's slot in the laundry room you don't clean out the fluff from the dryer so someone else has to do it you don't recycle properly you leave soap or so like waste that needs to go to the tip you leave that in your housing association's recycling room like that's really really annoying and effect like that will provoke an angry passive aggressive note because a swede will never come up to you and say i'm really angry at you that was stupid they'll leave you a note saying Mm. which will say that in worse words there'll be very very kind of profanities and lots of javla and all of this like on a note but never in person i'm
1: typing out that note to you as you speak becky (laughs)
3: Sweden is a paradise for passive aggressives
2: Especially irritating if you mix up Sweden and Switzerland So so the protesters in Afghanistan who accidentally burnt a Swiss flag instead of a Swedish flag I think they probably annoyed Swedes more than if they just burnt the Swedish flag because that whole like mi- mixing up with Switzerland is very irritating.
0: I know it feels like a myth sometimes that thing about people mixing up Sweden and Switzerland. But then we saw those pictures. Yesterday.
2: Yeah, I was like, is this a bit cliché? Does this actually happen? <laughs> I was, okay, I, I
4: once crossed the border from Kazakhstan to Kyrgyzstan with my Swedish person, who's now my wife, and and she spent. They took her. They took the Kyrgyz border guards took her into a back room, and and she had to get out a map to prove that Switzerland and Sweden were different places. And she and they were, and they were amazed. They'd never met. met to Sweden their life and I just found that it was hysterical actually she had to like point it out on this big world map on
3: the back of their office <laughs> I wonder what the Swiss people think about this you know? yeah. if they're more <laughs> aggravated at being mixed up with Sweden than we are yeah we should ask them yeah. Yeah, nobody, nobody ever asked. no exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, we'll point. have to ask
2: the local Switzerland <laughs> yeah. to get them on the podcast uh,
0: and you've put together uh, quite a few of these in, in an article 33 is that right so we'll link to that in the show notes
2: I think we had something like 80 suggestions but there were just so many
0: we're going to move on now to the Swedish property market. And Richard, you wrote an article this week that we'll link to in the notes explaining how much homes in Scandinavia are overvalued. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? And then we'll bring Andreas in to talk about the role property has played in growing wealth disparity in Sweden.
4: Yeah, well, well we all know that house prices have started been falling now for about six months, and which they haven't really at all since I've lived in Sweden, which is, what, 11 years. But I wanted to get a better understanding of what the... What the kind of underlying situation was how precarious the situation was and whether we could you know just have a sort of soft landing or whether it could be could be more serious Looking at Sweden, Denmark and Norway, house prices have fallen quite a bit more in Sweden. In fact, more than most other countries in the world. I don't know if Anders knows about this. That's true, yeah. So the price of homes in Sweden is down about 17% from the peak in June. But in parts of Stockholm, it's a bit more, more like 20%, a bit over 20%. What really hit me was a study the EU Statistics Agency did in 2021. So before the rates went up, which showed that Sweden and Denmark were among the countries where people spent the highest proportion of their incomes on housing. And that means it doesn't take much of a hike in mortgage payments before people really start struggling. And the crucial difference between Denmark and Sweden here is that while most Danes have fixed mortgages, about half of them have mortgages that fix the duration of the loan about 90% of people in Sweden have variable mortgages, or more than 90% in Sweden have variable mortgages, which are just fixed for three months, which means that they feel the pain of every rise almost immediately.
5: Mm,
0: Definitely. So what's going to happen next? The Riksbank, Sweden's central bank,
4: expects the price of homes to fall about 8% this year, before rising a bit in 2024. So I'm a bit sceptical because the Riksbank, and also all the other banks in Sweden, you know, Swedbank, uh, Handelsbank, and all the others, that they completely misjudged in inflation last year, I suspect that rates will have to go higher for longer than they think. And uh, But I should warn that I, I failed the Economics One course at university. And also, I have a friend who last year blamed me for destroying his life. Because in about 2006, I was telling him that houses in London were completely overvalued. And there was going to be a crash, which there was a bit with the, with the financial crisis. But it, it, it was really extremely bad advice.
0: I think we need to get Andreas in now. So you do have a very good grasp of economics. And you mentioned in your book that the average price of a square meter of property rose by 800% between 1996 and 2021. How did that happen and why does it matter?
3: So I think there's a, a combination of factors. I mean, one is like urbanisation and uh, the fact that we haven't built enough housing to cater for our growing population. But as Richard pointed out, one big reason is that interest rates have been very, very low, especially the last mm. 15 years. And I mean, we had negative interest rates for seven years. And that also plays into psychology and we have a whole generation in Sweden that have been taught that you need to make a a real estate career, which implies that prices can only go up. Mm. And there's no risks at all. And obviously, there's been quite a rude awakening now in the last few months. And why does it matter? Well, one big consequence is that Swedes are very heavily in debt, as we should also talk about. Uh, That's that's the backside of of rising house prices. And also, it's cemented segregation uh, and also wealth inequality. I mean, there's... Almost a sort of an A and B team of Swedish society, whereas uh, people who didn't buy a house uh, twenty years ago or fifteen years ago are relatively losers. Uh, they've lost out on you know millions of kronor of uh, profits. Uh, and I mean, it's been much more uh, uh, profitable to to earn a house uh, in the last ten years than to work. If you if you count the the rising prices and also segregation I mean in the US they talk a lot about you know gated communities uh, and in Sweden yeah. we have that but we have something much more effective than walls or barbed wire we have high square meter prices and that's very mm. difficult to, to get over especially since you need quite a substantial amount of capital to be able to qualify to, to get a mortgage so, so yeah. that has meant that you know people who don't own anything they stay in the same area and that creates some social problems and, and just this creates a, a, a tension in the fabric of, of society I think.
2: Also if there's no affordable housing like if you need I don't know a million kroner to, to buy somewhere. And you' can't, you know twenty thousand kroner is maybe not enough. that means that there 's nowhere for kind of the first people to buy a property If the only properties available are kind of mid range then where does everyone else who 's starting out at the beginning what do they buy you know,
3: yeah i mean especially for for young people I mean, the hurdle is enormous, even if you get a job with a high salary. You can't buy a property if you don't have rich parents or parents who, who've, uh, you know, made a lot of profit in the in the real estate market. So, I mean, basically, if you look at the big cities in Stockholm, the center of Stockholm, you, you can almost have a sign, if you're young, don't bother coming here because you can't afford it. Uh, and also, I think, affects the high cost of living. And of course, it's been rising even more now with the interest rates. It also affects, you know, do you can you afford to have kids? Uh, what kind of job should you be looking for i mean it's almost that uh, to be a if you're living in stockholm if you're a teacher or a nurse or a policeman it's almost uh, an, like an economic sacrifice you're making because the the cost of living is so extremely high
2: not even can you afford to have kids but how many kids can you afford to have because if sure. you have more kids you need a bigger property as well yes. that's why so many people end up moving out moving further away from the city centres.
3: Yes, and also, you know, it's changing from the big cities to, there's a, been a wave, actually, for many years, people were moving to Stockholm. In the last few years, people being leaving Stockholm. And that's one of the reasons.
0: Great, thanks for that, Andreas. And we'll come back to you soon when we talk more about Sweden's billionaires and wealth inequality. Now, recently, we've seen major layoffs in the tech sector with Amazon, Microsoft and Google all slashing their workforces in a major way. And this week, we learned that Sweden's Spotify is set to lay off 6% of its global workforce. And we have a lot of listeners who work for Spotify and other tech firms in Sweden. And given that these are tough times across the board, we thought we'd chat about what to do if you lose your job in Sweden. Becky, can you give us your best advice?
2: Yeah, so first off, there's two different ways of losing your job. You can be made redundant, which is that one. That's the one that's valid or like uh, relevant for Spotify employees. And then there's being dismissed, which is of Weirdad. Mm. Uh, If you're made redundant, then you usually have a notice period. You still get a salary. You get other benefits of employment. If you're of Weirdad, then you're usually not because it's usually due to something that you've done. In both cases, your employer has to give you a reason for, for firing you or for getting rid of you if you ask them you're entitled to consultations with your trade union if you're a member of a trade union. If you're made redundant, your employer is meant to have consultations with your union before giving you your notice. If you don't believe that they had objective reasons for for firing you, you can make a claim to either get your job back or claim for damages. It's easiest to do this if you're a member of a union. You can do it by yourself by hiring a lawyer. You are probably entitled to unemployment benefit. I won't go into all the details because it gets a bit complicated. We've got an article about it on the website. As a general rule, the base level is just over 11,000 kroner a month and the maximum is capped at around 26,000 kroner a month.
0: Right. And Can we talk um, specifically about people on work permits now which is the case obviously for, for a lot of our listeners?
2: Yeah, so first 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 off, Spotify in particular have said that their human resources team are going to be working specifically with people that are on work permits. But the Swedish rules are during the first 24 months working in Sweden, your work permit is linked to a specific employer. After this period, it's still restricted to a specific occupation, but you don't necessarily need to apply for a new work permit. If you're going to have the same job, but just for a different employer, you you probably won't need to apply for another Mm. work permit. If you lose the job tied to your work permit, the Swedish Migration Agency allows you three months to stay in the country and find a new job. If your work permit is set to expire during that time, then you'll need to apply for an extension. And to apply for an extension, you need a new job.
0: Great. Thanks for that roundup, uh, Becky. And we'll link to your article on this in the show notes. We have reached the point in the episode where we're going to listen to an envoy from afar and they don't come from much further afield than New Zealand. I had an interesting chat recently with the New Zealand ambassador, Andrew Jenks, about everything from the internationalisation of Sweden to its self-styled stance as a moral superpower. He started by telling me about his long-standing ties to Sweden.
6: I first came here actually... uh... Off my own bat 20 years ago, lived here for three years, had our first child here, uh, and then um, my poor suffering wife had to follow me from there back to New Zealand uh, and then to other parts of the world and take another 20 years for us to get back to Sweden. So yeah. you speak Swedish then, presumably? Ja, Kanswanska, and yeah, then to Sobra.
0: Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's unusual among, among diplomats, because usually people are just in and out for a couple of years, but you're sort yeah. of a little bit, a bit no. more, more embedded than your, than your
6: typical ambassador, maybe. Absolutely. No, I, I feel quite privileged, actually. I've got um, a long history with Sweden, uh, apart from the language, uh, which means I can listen to the radio, watch TV, which yeah. I think is a, is, is a great asset in itself. I have a lot of connections uh, and knowledge of the, of the society, which I do think give me um, you know, c- certain special insights. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so we could talk a little bit about New Zealanders in Sweden. How many, how many are there to start
6: with? We don't know. That's the simple answer. We don't keep a, a register. No. We think there's at least 500 to 1,000 New Zealanders in Sweden. But that's just a yes based on, yeah. you know, bumping into people on in the street and yeah. coming to events. What I can say is that I think there's a, a heck of a lot more than there were when I first came 20 years ago. Whereas 20 years ago, most of the New Zealanders you met were like me, love refugees. Mm. Now you meet many more who are here to study or have come for work, particularly in the the IT uh, sector. Um, so I think it has been a big change.
0: So if we can move on to bilateral relations, what are relations like between uh, New Zealand and Sweden and how have they sort of evolved over time?
6: Well, they're, they're very good, as, as you can imagine. I mean, we like to say, um, and I think they like to say, that we're two of the most like-minded countries that you're going to find. And I think that's actually really true mm. when you um, analyse a relationship from a, a values base. We both share a very strong commitments to rule of law, human rights, security, peace, Yeah. Uh, issues like disarmament. And I've been asking all the ambassadors we've had on
0: about the sort of personal impressions of Sweden, and it's a little different for you because you have this long relationship with the country, but what would you say is the one thing that you found most surprising after moving here?
6: Having lived here 20 years ago, there weren't too many surprises, um, I must say. I guess the, the the biggest surprise I got when I most recently moved here was to see how how much more internationalised yeah. Stockholm had become. I mean, compared to twenty years ago, there are so many, much more English spoken, almost like the lingua franca in the in the uh, in the shops, but also other languages. If you're just walking around the streets of Stockholm, you yeah. you hear so many different languages being spoken. So I think I think that's quite a big change. Of course, I don't think that that's reflected across Sweden. I mean, no. Stockholm, maybe malmö maybe you'd see some similar evolution makes me think you know when i was
0: when i was growing up and i've heard this from a lot of other people as well sweden and scandinavia were sort of white spaces on the map we didn't know much about them do you think they're standing in the In the world has changed in recent decades. You know, we've had this internationalisation. Does it move Sweden in from the periphery a little bit?
6: I don't know about that. It's it's an interesting... I I guess I've grown up where Sweden's always... You know, it's occupied a space. I think mostly one time I've heard it expressed as Sweden being the conscience of Europe, or the Nordics being the conscience of Europe. And I think they still occupy that space.
0: Just it was interesting you were talking about that moral aspect, the sort of conscience of Europe. Do you think Sweden is going to have to abandon that position now that it's moving away from military non-alignment?
6: Oh no, I don't think it it, it has to do that at all. I don't think we we should un, underestimate the, the you know how what a big decision that was by Sweden and Finland to join NATO. I mean you know when I first arrived here a few years ago, you know, this this question came up: Will Finland and Sweden? join NATO and the answer was an absolute no, it's not going to happen and then here we are (laughs) a few years later, it's happened or it's happening. The decision to shift seemed easy enough and we know why, because Mm. there was immense pressure to do so, external factors which frankly I completely understand, if I was them I would be joining NATO um, in the circumstances. I think a lot of the consequences are yet to play out, they'll be part of a formal military alliance and with that will come obligations. And it will just mean that even though um, that doesn't necessarily extend to compromising your principles on certain issues such as disarmament, it might find you know how it can express itself in the same way as a NATO partner. I, I think it will have to find different ways to do that. Mm. But principles, I don't think it's going to compromise on, or values, I don't okay. think. Just a final question, uh, what would you say is the best thing about living in Sweden? It's a long, dark winter and a short, sharp but very beautiful and, and lovely summer. The key is to, to enjoy that winter. And I don't think I did that very well the first time I lived here, but I've much more embraced it this time around. Yeah. Once you can embrace the winter here, then I think you're fine. And yeah. uh, you can really enjoy life to the full. And I think Sweden does offer a, an amazing physical environment to live in. And then also, I still appreciate very much the, the values-based approach to education and society and work, which just puts a little bit more uh, emphasis on work-life balance, more emphasis on children, yeah. things like this.
0: That was the New Zealand ambassador, Andrew Jenks, and we'll have an article featuring more from that interview on the local.se in the coming days. Now, how did Sweden transition from being a high-tax bastion of welfare statism to a billionaire's paradise over the course of just a couple of decades? This is the central question that prefaces Andreas's gripping account of what you describe, Andreas, as almost like a modern-day gold rush in Sweden. Congratulations, first of all, on the book, A Yirig Sverige* or Greedy Sweden, which topped bestseller lists last year and led to you receiving Sweden's most prestigious journalism award. And we're delighted to have you here to tell us a little bit more about the book. And I'd like to start by asking you about the statistic that underpins the whole thing, which is that over the course of 25 years, Sweden went from having 28 krona billionaires to 542 how did that happen?
3: Well, there are several things uh, I pointing to in the book, uh, but I think you know underpinning those, this whole um, development is inflation, and uh, I mean there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation these days. But in fact, we have had inflation in Sweden for quite a long time, but not in consumer prices, but in assets. Mm. So we have what you call asset inflation, and that is rising prices of property, stocks, land, or all kinds of financial assets. And that's been quite explosive for a long time. And that, of course, benefits people who own assets, and uh, specifically people who own assets that they finance with debt. Because when the interest rates are very low, this becomes very cheap. So people who, uh, you know, if you simplify it a bit, people who have owned things the last two decades have been huge uh, winners. And people who don't own have been, you know, losers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say specifically, uh, I think, I, you know, would like to pinpoint three things. We've already talked about one of them, uh, the low interest rates. You know, especially the last 15 years. And I mean, that's not unique for Sweden, but Sweden was quite extreme uh, with our negative interest rates for a lot of years, especially when the Swedish economy was doing quite well. I mean, negative interest rate, would normally only happen if you're in a very deep recession to try to take the economy out of the slump. But we have had interest rates when when people were doing quite well and companies were you know, making a lot of profits and there was no... Uh, not so high unemployment, so that has fueled uh, this, you know, asset inflation very much. Yep. Uh, and this is sort of, I mean, the central bank is uh, supposed to be a political institution, uh, but, you know, low interest rate does create uh, inequality in, 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 a, in the way that it actually transfers money from people who don't own things, who don't have, uh, you know, mortgages, to people who do own. And that's been a huge transfer of, of wealth. But Sweden's politicians, for some reason, decided to put a little more uh, fuel on that fire by lowering our taxes. So Sweden is still a very high tax country when it comes to taxation of labor. We're not number one in the world, but we're still in the the top five. But when it comes to taxes on assets, on property, we've been uh, abolishing a lot of taxes. So it started in the 90s with the uh, wealth tax, the inheritance tax and the gift tax, and then in 2000s we abolished the property tax, which uh, you know actually is quite unique. A lot of most countries have property tax. We also lowered the taxation on uh, you know companies, corporations in several stages. And in the you know the last decade, we've had a very very low taxation on um, capital gains uh, in the stock market yeah. through what's been, become very popular, the investing sparconto. ESK. So, just for a, you know, comparison, if you made one million krona last year on you know s- dividends from stock or you know rising uh, stock prices, uh, you paid last year seven uh, percent on that income. Yeah. But if you made a 1 million kroner on on, uh, working, you probably paid around 35 or even more percent. And that's quite a big difference. And also, I mean, our property tax is uh, what you call regressive, which means the richer you are, the lower your tax rate. So if you have a mega mansion in Jusholm, in Stockholm, worth 100 million kroners, you paid last year 8,500 in the so-called property fee. Yeah. And that's the exact same amount you would pay for a small house worth two million in the in the Swedish uh, countryside. So uh, that is also a quite a unique uh, setting. I think that has increased the the uh, attractiveness of earning assets compared to earning money on something else. And the third thing I would point out is that we've made our welfare state a market. So. There's now private equity and, you know, international financial investors in all of our, you know, welfare industries like healthcare, education, etc., etc. So Sweden is the only country on earth when you can become a billionaire by running schools that are funded entirely by taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a handful of people who have become billionaires that way. These are three of the main factors that have you know, created the explosion in billionaires.
0: And there's some really fascinating facts in the book. And Richard has actually put together a list of some of the ones that really stand out, which we'll link to in the show notes. For example, the richest 0.1% of Swedes hold about 29% of total household wealth. And Sweden's 542 billionaires own as much as the poorest 6.2 million Swedes. Now, some schools of thought might suggest that everyone benefits when the rich get richer. But you argue that this level of wealth inequality could, in fact, pose serious problems for the Swedish economy. Why?
3: Well, the obvious one is. Is uh, you know what we already talked about the, the level of debt. So when this in you know inequality has been fueled by asset inflation, that means people have to take on debt. So uh, the middle class is heavily in debt, and that makes our economy vulnerable. But I mean, if you talk about wealth inequality and inequality in general, uh, there's a lot of other problems. Even if you look at research, you can um, connect it to lower growth. This is something that the International Monetary Fund has pointed out you can connect it to a higher level of crime disparity in, in health and this was actually proven in the pandemic when, when um, the low income areas of sweden were most hard yeah. hit in the beginning of the pandemic because people who lived there had occupations that you couldn't work from home There were bus drivers nurses etc cetera, etc cetera. so as as you know direct effects and also i would say over a, you know wider picture i think what's Problem specifically for Sweden is the difference between a very high taxation of labor and a relatively low taxation on assets, because that alters your incentives mm. as a citizen. So why should you try to get a high-paying job when, from a taxation standpoint, it's much more lucrative to be a day trader on the stock market? Mm. And I think that also plays in when people. Uh, you know, choose, you know, what they're going to do with their lives. I mean, we have a problem in Sweden with it's very difficult to get nurses. It's difficult to get teachers, difficult to get good people wanting to be in the police or in the military. That's a problem. And also it's a problem because some labor that we, taxes on labor that we finance the whole welfare state. So roughly 85% of the Swedish state tax income is from taxes on labor. And only four and a half percent is from, you know, private you know, taxes on private property. Uh, so if we have a lot of people, you know, quitting their day job to be day traders or or which has been very popular the last year, like um, instead of taking out your money as salary, you take it as a dividend in your own private company. That lowers, you know, the income for the state. And over time I think that erodes the whole idea of the the welfare state.
0: Yeah, and you talk a lot in the book about the obsession in Sweden with the stock market, and particularly the fact that young people in Sweden are now taking out SMS loans to buy shares in an attempt to get rich quick and place deposits on a home. Why are you so concerned about this?
3: Yeah, I think, first of all, it plays in in the whole, you know, the environment they grew up in, which is like uh, a world where it's... Stock market can only rise, interest can only be low, but also a a world where you have to get rich quick. If you want to buy an apartment you know, sometime in your adult life, you have to get a, you know, a half a million crowns or, or more. And I think a lot of people, millennials, that will look for the quick way to to get rich. And that's you know, like high-risk stocks, Bitcoin or other things. Or even then, as you said, take loans to, to finance mm. that. And that obviously is very dangerous. And I think a lot of people already got burnt on, on, on this. Unfortunately, the, the market for these uh, SMS loans and, you know, Quick loans has been very lucrative, uh, The re, you know, regulation has been very lax, and I, you know, there's been some, uh, some changes, but it's still like an, a market for scavengers. So uh, I actually wrote a piece uh, the other week in Aftonbladet. And according to the Financial Watchdog Finance some of these loans, if you add up all the fees, uh, can end can up to an effective interest rate of over 100,000%. <laughs> which means that if you take out very small loans it could quite quickly become a problem and you get in debt and you can't pay and you get uh, sent to Kuunefok then yeah. you get a, a register there which means you can't you know, get a rental yeah, contract a It's a lot of problem creates uh, a lot of problem for people you know just entering uh, you know their adult' life mm.
2: as someone who's just bought an apartment now it does feel a little bit like you look at what the prices were 20 years ago and you're like okay well Literally, the only difference for me is that I I moved here later. Like, why is it that I'm the one that has to pay double or triple the amount that people were paying 20 years ago?
3: So I would say a lot of people in Sweden are, you know, practically now working for their banks because that's where the the lion's share of their income goes to to pay rents and and you know down payments. And and I think also, I mean, people have been taking risks at all levels. So people who have huge mortgages take uh, a lot of risk too. And I mean, one should remember, I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, prices of eggs or butter has increased 20, 30, 40 percent. Mm. But your interest payments have maybe gone up by three to 400 yeah. percent. I mean, three, four, five times what you used to pay. And that's a, that's a huge, yeah. uh, huge yeah. increase.
2: I think a lot of people think that when they're taking out a mortgage, the bank advisor is their friend that's trying to kind of lead them down the best route for them. And yeah, they're going to tell you if you're going to make yourself go bankrupt. But I think a lot of people also maybe miss this kind of, OK, how does this work? Let me just understand this for myself. The mortgage provider is actually trying to sell me something. Do I understand the kind of financial implications of making this decision? I think maybe yeah, that's another yeah. aspect. That's very true. I mean, it's,
3: it's still the other term, your personal bankman. I mean, you wouldn't go into a Volvo dealership and someone wouldn't call themselves your personal car man because he's a salesman. And that's what yeah. people at banks are, too. So I think, the best, I think the best summary of banking was someone who said that banks uh, lend umbrellas when the sun is out and ask them back when it starts <laughs> raining. So in good times, they're willing to lend a, you know infinitely amount of money. In bad times, they're going to be very, very harsh.
0: I think it's fair to say that the book is kind of terrifying, and you get the sense, you get the sense of a ticking bomb throughout. How worried are you about the prospect of a really major financial crisis in Sweden?
3: Well, that's a ten thousand billion krona question, I guess. I think you should definitely not rule it out. So one should also remember that Sweden we we're, we're quite good at. Managing uh, crises that start outside, that are out of our control, like the financial crisis, like the pandemic, but we also have a tendency to create our own problems. So remember, in the beginning of the '90s, we have a huge real estate and housing bubble that burst and sent Sweden into a you know deepest financial crisis since the since the war, and we're still actually feeling the effects of that. What's happening now is you know <laughs> roughly the same, although the you know, the numbers are bigger. So we have. Um, one huge risk is the, you know, the real estate market. Mm. Uh, all the companies that have taken on enormous debt to buy, you know, offices, housing, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm actually quite surprised how well the Swedish economy has stood up until now, considering, you know, the impact on, you know, interest rates. But this, you know, this remains to be seen how the, how this plays out. Right now, uh, the markets are betting that we can avoid the worst case scenario. But you know the jury's still out. I think. Uh, I think the next uh, six months will be quite uh, crucial.
0: Are there any plans to translate the book into English?
3: Not at this point. But you know, if if uh, anyone listens to this and has a uh, uh, wants to do that, Richard's really
0: good at economics. I think he should get on the case. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening and thank you to Andrea Savenka for joining us. Our panellists today were Emma Lovegrain, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Omani and we'll be back again next Saturday with a brand new episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care.
5: wherever you listen to podcasts acast helps creators launch grow and monetize their podcasts everywhere acast.com
0: that's all for this week's free edition of sweden in focus if you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis please upgrade to membership plus Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by the local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.